We left off way in uh, March or April with Psalm 8, and I was just going to pick up Psalm 9 tonight. We can make our way through and let the, the Word of the Lord minister to you. And uh, we got a bunch of places to flip, so get ready with that. And most of them are going to be, in fact, I think all of them are to the right of Psalm 9. Um, and hopefully we can uh, let God's Word bless us and minister to us. So I'm going to read through it, and then we'll come back and see if we can find God's nature in what we're reading. Psalm 9, a prayer of thanksgiving for the Lord's righteous judgments. And it says, to the chief musician, to the tune of death of a son, of the son, a psalm of David. It says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart, and I will tell of all your marvelous works. I'll be glad and rejoice in you, and I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. And when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations, and you have destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities, and even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. And he has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. And the Lord will also be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And sing praise to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, who lift lift me up from the gates of death. Let's start over. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughters of Zion. And I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down to the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. And the Lord is known by his judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell. All the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know that they themselves to be but men. Selah. So there's uh, a lot of great exhortation here, and and I hope that we can uh, um, just let the Lord's nature and his character show through. He is the righteous judge. In verses 1 and 2, praising God praising Jehovah with our whole heart and telling of his marvelous works. There's lots of ways to describe and understand who you are as individuals. Each one of us is different. Like I like to say, there's as many stories as there are human beings and every one of them is different, yet this Bible applies to everyone the same. As amazing as that is is to us across the whole planet, all these people. But each one of us is different and unique. Some things about you are known by all, some things only by a few, maybe your family and friends. Some things you don't even know about yourself. And um, 
some things about yourself you don't even know. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. And who can know it? And I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. That's Jeremiah 17. But what are we supposed to do with such a helpless state? I mean, how do we deal with the fact that we don't even know our own heart and yet we'll be accountable for what's going on in our hearts? Well, what are we to do? Philippians 4, I'm just going to read a couple here and we'll, we'll do some turning in a little bit. But Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Will guard your hearts and minds. Um, be anxious for nothing. The first thing we need to do is pray. You know, put our own hearts in his hands. Get into the word, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and of the joints and the marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him who we must give an account to. So, number one, pray. Give your heart to the Lord, you know, and let go. And then number two, get into the Word. The Word feeds our heart. The Word is going to be living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. The heart is described in the Scriptures, if you want to do a word study. It's the inner man. It's the mind, the will, the heart. Some of these have different words in the Greek or the Hebrew for mind and all. But it's the will, the center of your will. It's the heart. It's understanding, uh, the inner part, the midst, the inclination, the resolution, the determination of will. Conscience. The heart, as the Bible says, of a moral character, it says it's the seat of your appetites. It's the seat of emotions and passions. And it's the seat of courage. And this is what we're talking about, the heart. And David says with his whole heart, the heart is where strongholds are established and will always work their way out into our lives one way or another, good or bad. The heart can be deceitful and hard or tender and kind. The heart will make a convert of the mind, whatever's going on in your heart. Eventually, it's going to persuade your mind to kind of follow along and make plans. The heart is the very seat of who you are. You're the one that can take things to heart, or you can refuse to be broken, fail to root out bitterness, covetousness, or lust, greed. It's up to you. Decisions are mostly made with what you know, but the decision to have a change of heart is you choosing to forgive those. Maybe that hurts you. Or choosing to repent from those things that are difficult to give up. That's when it gets down to the nitty-gritty. That's what happens going on in your heart. Things that are hard to do. Things that don't necessarily happen just by thinking it through. They happen by having a change of heart. And we need that. Um, You can reason things out mentally, but change of heart is the only way to change your mind. And uh, this is why if we're wise, we'll put our hearts into his hands as much as is possible. And... um, Put his word into our, to our hearts and dwell on it. Asking him to direct us and allowing him to uh, you know, be the one to rule on the throne. He's the one that should be sitting on the throne of our hearts, not us. And we don't have the strength to change, but he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has the, has the power to, to bear fruit in us 
as we let him do that, as we surrender to him. It's where Jesus knows the thoughts of your heart. He knows whether you're going to continue to maintain evil in your heart or surrender to him. Where forgiveness for your brothers or sisters comes from, not your mind, not your understanding. It's going to come out of your heart. These are the things that the Bible says about the heart. Matthew 13, if you want to turn to that, um, most of you are familiar. If not, this is a great uh, passage for understanding and what exactly we're dealing with when we're talking about the heart and uh, what David is talking about. Matthew 13, we'll do verses 3 through 9 and then skip to 18 through 23. So this is a bunch of people are gathering around. It says in verse 2, great multitudes are gathering to him. And he got out where he could speak to all of them. And he says, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seed, and it fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up, and because they had no depth of earth, But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. It says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's telling a parable. And they're all familiar with farming. I mean, it was a farming culture across the world for up until maybe 200 years ago. And there were cities and there were places and markets and so forth, but uh, primarily everybody had some land and they, had, they knew how to farm. They knew what this was all about. You know, they knew how, that seeds were going to be you know, exposed or whether or not they were going to uh, make it. And So they had a few questions for him, but skipping down to uh, verses 18 through 23, he explains. And keep in mind, what's the seed? And um, who's the sower? And where's that seed going? Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anybody hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. And this is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on good ground and he who hears the word and understand it, he indeed bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. So what's the seed? The seed's the word of God. That's what we're hanging out tonight. But what's the soil? The soil is our hearts. And uh, there's conditions of the heart. You can have a hard heart. You can have a heart that's also in love with some other things. The world and the cares of this world are coming up and they cause it to choke out the seed. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. So your heart is where the word of God is sown. As a parable uh, parable says, the seed can be stolen by Satan. You know, it cannot take root because of offense or persecution. And as a believer, if you live a godly life, there's going to be persecution. That's a promise, one of those promises we don't often find on the refrigerator. But if you're going to find, uh, uh, if you're going to live according to God's word one way or another, whether in your own personal life and 
trying to deal with thoughts and attacks and warfare or at work or from family or friends, neighbors, there will be persecution. You'll be made uncomfortable. Maybe not as much in this country yet, but give it time. We all know and we all see what's kind of going on out there and how they're starting to particularly take aim at believers. And um, so, you know, it gets choked out by the cares of this world, deceitfulness of money or lust after other things, or the word of God is received into the heart. And we do receive it and allow it to, to do and what it's going to do. And it's going to bear fruit. And it's all depending on the condition of our hearts. If you want to have change of heart, ask the Lord, like we talked about, pray and get into his word. So when David says with his whole heart in verse 1, the whole heart is not divided. You're not serving two masters, trying to please both. You know, you know how, what it is when people go half-heartedly at something. And, uh, you know, they're not doing a good job. It's, they're not, their heart's not in it. It doesn't mean anything to them. They've got no skin in the game, if you will. But when you go after it with your whole heart, it's not divided. It says, uh, in just taking apart that word, whole heart, not divided, dis- not distracted, not allowed to wander. And like I said, Jesus uh, says we cannot serve two masters. Either we'll go all in or there's misery trying to please the one or the other. The truth is, it's impossible. You can't please both God and mammon. You can't have a divided heart. And, you know, so what, what is he doing, David, with his whole heart? Praising God and telling of his marvelous works. In verse, um, back to Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2. You know, I will tell of all your marvelous works. That's not a word we use a lot these days, marvelous. We kind of have an idea what it means. But, and... The original here it talks about being something wonderful, and that means full of wonder, that you really do wonder at it, not just wonderful. Um, surpassing, beyond something that we can understand, extraordinary, separate as in a sacrifice, or separate as in holy, something that's completely different and separate by distinguishing action. It says, by one's power, difficult to do. So what he's talking about here is something that we can't do. He's talking about God's marvelous works. And what makes it marvelous is that we can't do it on our our own. It's something that he's able to do, and we see it. And we're going to be talking about these marvelous works. You know, we we need to recognize and know what God has done, and only God can do. For some of us, it'll only be what what, uh, he's done in our own lives, and we can testify to that. And we do have a testimony. And um, David gives glory to God when Goliath falls. And a lot of people believe that Psalm 9 is is uh, written in relation to that, talking about putting his enemies to flight and, and all, and, and it could very well have to do with that. There's no mention necessarily of it, but, uh, you know, David gave the glory to God. He didn't take the glory. The guys are all saying, look at what you just did. He says, glory to the God of Israel. You know, there's nothing in me. I mean, he's a little guy, and he throws a stone and catches the guy just right, and sure, he's good, but that takes God to do, and so God gets the glory and uh, he declares God's wondrous works, how he's shown mercy on us. And let's do a little flipping here in Psalms. If you want to go to me with me uh, with um, Psalm 40, verse 5. And we'll see how the word marvelous is used. And we'll just declare some of God's marvelous works. And uh, as we're commanded to do right there, verse 1. Psalm 40, verse 5. 
It says, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done, and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I were to declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. And actually, you can't read that without reading the rest. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come, and the scroll of the book is written of me. And I delight to do your will, O my God. And that's prophetic of our Lord. And your law is within my heart. In Psalm 107, a dozen pages to the right, in verses uh, 1 and 2 and then 8 and 9, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed, that's us, of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And in 8 and 9, it says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And it says, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness and goes on to declare the wonderful works. In verses, uh, Psalm 11, just a page over, 1 through 10, he says, Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. In the assembly of the upright, in the congregation, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. And he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him, and he will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works, and giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. And his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever, and are then are done in truth and in uprightness. And he has sent redemption to his people, and he has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Amen. In Psalm 118, another page over. And each of these, you know, when I do the, the study for this, it, it's such a uh, reward to be able to maybe take a separate piece of paper and you make a list of all these attributes and things we learn about the Lord and his marvelous works. And you know, David's talking about jumping up and rejoicing and declaring these things. And, and I guess I've said it before, and, and you know, I don't, I'm not one of those guys that jumps and dances and hollers so much. I'm saving that for the kingdom, but usually joy ends up coming out in tears and um, coming out and just uh, glorifying him and being grateful for him and worshiping him and but um, Psalm 111 and verses uh, 1 through 10, did we just do that? Yes, Psalm 118, uh, verses 1 and then 18 through 23. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, again, and his mercy endures forever. And then in 18 through 23, the Lord has cha uh, chastened me. Do I have the right one here? Yep, the Lord has chastened me severely. But he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I'll go through them. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. And I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. And it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
And this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You know who he's talking about, right? This is what Jesus, in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus is this stone who the builders rejected. You know, we're talking about marvelous works now. Now we're talking about marvelous works that were done in our lives through the Lord Jesus. And um, the fact that he's called us. This is our Lord and Savior. This is marvelous in our sight. This is for you and this is for me. In Psalm 119, right next to it in, in verses 18 and then verse 27, it says, Open my eyes that I may see your wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. And then down in uh, verse 27, it says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. See how you're getting out of the word of God, his marvelous works and how it works in our lives. And um, Psalm 136, a couple more. And then one quick one in Jeremiah. Psalm 136, verse 4. And boy, if I'm going to rejoice in the marvelous works of God, the one at the top of the list is mercy. Uh, 136, verse 4. To him alone does, uh, who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. It says, uh, you know, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. And every verse has his mercy endures forever. But it's to him, to him alone, we give the glory. It's his marvelous work. And skipping the next page over to 139, starting at verse 14 through 18. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And you know, Psalm 139, if you have not read it before, is a great, the whole, the whole psalm. And it'll be a great study to do, but... Uh, um, you know, God knew us right from the day we were conceived and before the foundation of the world besides. And it talks about that in Psalm 139. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book they are all written. The days are fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I could count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, and I am still with you. Um, That's just an awesome passage to know that God's thoughts towards us. Jeremiah 32, 17 just a quick, you don't have to turn there if you don't want, just one quick verse, and the idea of it is, um, Ah, Lord, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth. If you want to consider his marvelous works, get a telescope, get a microscope. You have made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and outstretched arm, and it, there is nothing too hard for you is the point. God's marvelous works, wonderful stuff only he can do. Stuff that only he could do in our lives. We couldn't clean up our lives. He cleaned up our lives. We can't even really change our own hearts. You know, we have to ask him for that. We have to get into the word and let it change our hearts. And um, these are the marvelous things that he does. This is our opportunity to recall what he has done in our lives. Each one of you, like I said, has a story. And, and it's something. You know, there's something you know that brought you here. Um, 
Each one has their own testimony, their own personal knowledge of marvelous works that he's done in your life. And um, it might just be the scripture, but the salvation that he made for us, the grace and the mercy and the love that he has for us, how marvelous. The glory and eternity that lay ahead for us, can't even imagine, I hasn't seen, uh, nor has it even entered the mind. Um, But we are here because God's brought us here. We stay because he keeps us. And I'm not talking about here in this building, but here with him, walking with him. We are here because, uh, at the very least, he's made his word alive in us. Like the guys that uh, were on the road to Emmaus in uh, Luke 24. And Jesus hid himself from them for a while and trying to figure out what's going on. Then all of a sudden he opens up the word to them and tells them from Scripture. And that's the Old Testament. All the things that testified in him. What did it say? It said their hearts burned within them. Salvation. We're fed and refreshed and encouraged by his word. It strengthens our faith. It reminds us of his love for us and the glorious hope of the things to come. This is marvelous. makes us glad, rejoice, like the two on the road from Emmaus. We may not all have the gift of evangelism, but when we consider these things, it's got to come out of us. How do you not tell somebody? And uh, there's coming a time sooner or later where, you know, we're going to start to join in the sooner the better, but there's coming a time when we'll be in the presence of our Maker, and there will be rejoicing. Revelation 15.3, if you want to turn there, and you can read along with me. That way, if I can't, you can keep reading. Um, um, in, the, in, in the kingdom, or in, in the bold judgments, and Dwight's going through this, uh, he'll be getting to these. He actually just went through these. But it says, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. Your judgments have been made manifest. And that's what we're going to be talking about here in in Psalm 9. As we keep going, if you want to flip back, we'll get to verse 3 and through 6. There's a bit of a paragraph. And um, we'll look at some of those words and some of the meaning. So Psalm 6, I'm sorry, Psalm 9 once again. Bible's upside down. Um, (laughs) Uh, I will praise you, O Lord, verse 1. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. Well, the first thing that pops in my mind right away is, if you look at the words there, enemy would be his hated adversary. But turn back has the idea where takes the head and turns it and they fall backwards. Like somebody's just coming and taking you, spinning you around, pushing you backwards. You can't even look. And that brings it to mind immediately. It says they fall, stumble, stagger, totter. They're made feeble. They're made weak. They're made to stumble at this. And they just go limp, it says. That's the idea for perish there. But yeah, it makes me immediately think of when Jesus was, was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas comes up with his, with his cohorts. And who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I'm him. And that's all it took. They fell backwards. Same idea here. 
and very prophetic, I would say. In fact, Jesus said, the volume of the book speaks of me. Well, this is speaking of him at that time, at least, if not when he judges and all. We're going to get to that. So, uh, you know, God's presence, basically that word means his face. So, um, it says, I'll be glad and rejoice. I'll sing the praise of your name. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. Now, when David talks about his right and his cause, he, he's, he has his own issue going on, but this also has to do with, you know, the cause of, of Israel. I mean, he was commanded as king to keep cleaning out the land. They had to get rid of some Amalekites yet. Uh, that Saul had never gotten rid of. Uh, His right, his cause, was to do what the Lord had commanded him as king. And at this time, he may have not actually been, uh, like we said, he still possibly been when he took out uh, Goliath and hasn't yet risen to that. But all in Israel knew what was commanded of them, what they had to do. So, And and it could have been a personal thing. It could have been uh, Nadab. You know who who had some sheep, and David and his men were running around, and they were careful to to treat his uh, sheep properly and all. And uh, I think it's Second Samuel or First Samuel, and um, they, uh, you know, Nadab. David came by, says, "Well, can you have some bread? We've been kind of watching out for your people and taking care, and not not offending any of your shepherds and any of the your uh, maid servants that are in the fields. Nobody has touched them or anything." And and he laughs him off and says, who's this David? You know, he's nothing to me. And, uh, you know, this could be about that, where David's saying, my right, my cause, and I've given you, um, you know, he, he gives the Lord the glory. He sits on the throne. He's going to judge. He leaves it up to the Lord to do the judging. In verse 4, you've maintained my cause. Um, the, the maintain is to produce, prepare, attend, put in order. His right would be what actually sounds like a case, the word, like a, uh, to uh, settle a case or to um, uh, make a decision or even a litigation. My cause, my plea, my dispute, uh, my tribunal, these are the words that are used here. Um, but it says when the Lord sat in judgment to judge this, you know, he abides there, he remains there, it's ongoing. He stays there and he inhabits that place. It's his throne, it's his seat, it's his authority, his power. Judging, defending, contending, vindicating, executing judgment. And he does it in righteousness. You know, we think about justices, we got big Supreme Court stuff coming up. We got, uh, you know, corruption that we see and we know about. We we have uh, people we want to see get in. We want to hopefully get people in that are going to judge rightly. Nobody likes to be lied to. Nobody likes to see judgments that are that are false. Nobody likes to see uh, wickedness take off like it has in our country. We all want to see justice. Well, until Jesus judges here, the Lord in righteousness, and that righteousness, the word is morally legal, and it says naturally right. In other words, it makes perfect sense. Uh, Remember Jesus said, you guys are having a dispute? Why don't you stick a five-year-old in the middle? He can settle it for you. Because he'll just look and go, well, that makes sense. Let's just do this. And that's the kind of righteous judgment, the moral judgment. And people have just twisted it, and, you know, we deal with it. Stay in the word. Don't listen to the lies. Um, I don't know where you can go these days to not hear lies. You almost have to, you know, stay here. <laughs> but uh, And just stick, stay in the word. But uh, 
So David's cause also encompasses the surrounding nations. And when God judges, it's going to be plain and simple for all to see true justice. And um, so the wicked with their false gods and the violent oppression against the poor and the humble, these are the nations that he's talking about in verse 5. He says, you have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities, and even their memory has perished. Now, it's interesting, when uh, David talks about this, you know, God has rebuked these nations. He's destroyed the wicked. He's blotted out their name forever. And that's, I brought up the Amalekites. Um, But even back in uh, uh, the book of Genesis, you know, the Lord had judged the whole world. David knew about that. He'd certainly uh, read the Torah and understood that, um, you know, it's, the Lord will blot out forever those that are wicked and destroy them. And again, we know he wills that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. And you've got to keep that balance in mind. But um, he is also a righteous judge. And that if, not, if your salvation is not found in Jesus, if it's found out in something else that's not of the Lord, you know, it's really because of your wickedness. You know, people hang on to these other things because they want to continue to get away with their sin. They want to continue to get away with the, the, they don't want anybody to be their boss. You know, the, the t-shirt and the hat, you ain't the boss of me. You know, that's wickedness. That's blasphemy against the God who created them. Disobedience, rebellion. And that word destroy is the same as in verse 3. You know, to be thrown back and, and uh, made void. The wicked... The word means criminally hostile, or the guilty and criminally and hostile towards God. Now, the blotted out is interesting because we know that, uh, like I said, it's happened. We've seen it. Um, And again, like with the Amalekites, eventually they did take them out. There's no Amalekites anymore. Um, Wipe out, blotted out, obliterate, exterminate. And it's interesting that that's what these guys were doing. It says, O enemy, destructions are finished. You have destroyed cities and even their memory. And verse 6, you know, uh, God's enemies have done, uh, what they've been doing is finished, he's saying. They brought destructions, waste, and desolations. Uh, It was their goal, these enemies, the wickedness, was to, to make it complete, finished forever. Again, remove the memory of these people. Uh, leave, leaving Israel... Uh, their adversaries uh, to live there or foes to inhabit. In other words, they would take out uh, cities in Israel and leave them desolate, and then they'd bring in others uh, to live there and replace them. And then the memory destroyed, the memory vanished. Now, even the Romans, when they left Israel, uh, if you didn't know this, they took and salted the whole land. They just didn't want anybody living there to destroy the land and make it uninhabitable. And um, so it wouldn't be productive and they even named it Palestine, which is really the Philistine. Um, uh, Palestina really is the same word in Old Testament used for the uh, Philistia. Um, and so uh, they attempted to wipe out the memory of Israel, even the Romans, right? Salt the land, you can't live there. Make the cities uninhabitable. Rename the town and forget they were ever there. And uh, no matter what the heathen of this world will call it, we know that the land of Israel was given to Abraham and his descendants, and his covenant is with the land. 
His covenant is with Abraham. and We have a new covenant by faith, the same faith that Abraham had. And that's the new covenant in Jesus. But he has a covenant with the land. And he also has a covenant with his people. And that's Daniel's 70th week. And um, again, Dwight's going through that uh, completely in Revelation and, and some of the Old Testament prophets. But it says, um, you know, his covenant's with the land. And it's for his name to dwell there. And David's going to talk about that a little bit too. All the way through the book of Revelation, his throne is set in Zion, where the Lamb of God will judge all the nations. And where do you get that? Well, that's from Psalm 2. You know, we talked about that last spring with the, you know, the, you know, the Lord has chosen his anointed, and that anointed is the word Messiah. And when asked by Pilate, Jesus didn't answer any of his accusations, but when he asked, are you the Messiah? He said, yes, I am. He couldn't say no. He couldn't remain silent. And so we know from Psalm 2, also from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, and others, that God will judge, Jesus will judge, the Lamb will judge from Zion in Israel. We're sitting right now between verses 7 and verse 8. If you look at verse 7, But the Lord shall endure forever. He's always been. He always will be. He will endure. And he has prepared his throne for judgment. And that's what's going on. And, you know, we're close. I think it's ready. I don't even think it needs to be polished anymore. It is ready to go. He is ready to judge this world. He still desires that none would perish. And so he's not taking us out of here yet because there are some that remain that, uh, that need to hear the gospel. Make known those marvelous deeds in your life. And who knows? That could be the guy that you're talking to that uh, he understands and believes you for those marvelous deeds that the Lord did in your life. And he may be attracted to that and have, those, have that desire for those marvelous deeds in his life to be saved. And uh, so be sharing the Lord with people. But there it is in verse uh, 7. He's prepared his throne forever. That's, that's between 7 and 8 is where we are because he will judge the world in righteousness like we talked about. And he will administer judgment for the peoples in an uprightness. And that is the day yet to come. And uh, so moving on to something that more here is anything about his nature. I would hope that you, that you gather some of the Lord's nature, the Lord and Savior that you've trusted. And some of the reasons we do is because of these beautiful things of who he is. In verses 9, it also says that the Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. And so verses 9, 10, you know, we see his, for those who know his name, for those who put their trust in him, for those who seek the Lord, he will not forsake them. You can put your trust in that, your confidence in that. There are times when we don't see him, feel him, or know what's going on. And oftentimes uh, that can be a real dark place and things can be going on in our lives. And yet we just need to remember that he's faithful. He's the faithful one. We might not have been faithful. We might not have been doing what we're supposed to be doing and now we got ourselves in trouble and we just don't want to look to him. But truth is, he's faithful. He didn't go anywhere and he's ready for us to look at him and draw close to him. So he's declaring God's deeds among the people and singing praises to the judge who dwells in Zion. You know, anyone who seeks him, he will not forsake. Verse 11, 
And then verse 12, uh, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. Well, who's he remembering? He says, he does not forget the cry of the humble, those who have cried out. You know, so he will not forget those who have put their trust in him, who took refuge in him. The humble who cry out to God, the humble, the, the poor, the afflicted, the meek, the lowly, he will not forget them. He's a refuge to them, David's saying in, in verse 12. In verse 13, he turns it to, to some of the things. All this, in light of all of this, he wants to bring this to his own life. He needs this as well. He acknowledges that this is his situation. You know, who knows where he was at this time, whether he was, uh, you know, scooting around the countryside just looking for scraps. I know that he had to go back and forth from the battle with Goliath to, to take his brother's food and, and along the way maybe fight a lion or a bear, you know. But um, so he, David was bringing this to his own situation in, in verse 13. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death. You know, and he's talking about death that he was brought to by his enemies. That I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. And I will rejoice in your salvation. And so he's talking about there's never, if there's ever been a time that you, um, I should say there's never been a time that you cannot ask for God's mercy. You know, from a sincere heart. It's his nature. He is a merciful Turn that around. Put the full in front. He is full of mercy for us. And uh, he's a merciful, full of mercy God. And it's not the first time David was brought to the gates, brought up from the gates of death. It says, con, uh, consider, it says, look into, think on the trouble from those that hate him. I can't get used to the fact that there are those out there that hate me. I mean, I'm one of those guys that just wants to get along with everybody, keep the peace, keep it quiet. When I realize people hate me, I go, what can I do to fix it? You know, and uh, I don't want anybody not to like me, isn't that? You guys are fine, I'm sure, but that's my problem. Anyway, <laughs> but, you know, that's just the, the, the bottom line is we're going to be hated. We already are hated. Um, whoever uh, is keeping track of who Christians are, and they're, they're there. I mean, obviously they keep an eye on things. As soon as you speak out, uh, they're going to keep track of, of who you are. If it's not the guys who you work with, they're not going to behave the same around you anymore. The truth is we're already hated. We're already despised. If some had a chance, they'd probably try and do us harm. There are some out there with their plans for what they want to do with the world that as soon as they get the chance, they're going to take us out altogether. That never happened before, did it? Well, sure it did. Ever since Stephen and the apostles in, in the New Testament, church has been persecuted, maybe not in America as much as in Iran or uh, any other false religion where they rule the country. Even India is half Muslim, half Hindu, and the Hindus can be more brutal to Christians than, than the Muslims can be. Um, they've, they've been killing the apostles since the beginning of the book of Acts, and since then they've been murdering Christians all over the world. And it's for our testimony. It's our testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, but God will judge. It says that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. How does David know that God was helping him? Well, he's been seeing it, reading about it, 
God dealt with the nations regarding Israel, so he'll hear David. He knows he will. He hears and sees the situation of the poor, the humble, the oppressed. He knows, David knows if God will do all that, then he's not going to forget the poor. And so he talking about that. That's verses 15 and 16. The nations have sunk down to the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord knows by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. And it says meditation is the word. I don't know how to pronounce the actual one there. And selah. And we know what that means. Think about it. Pause. Meditate. Slow down. Take a look at it. You know, when the Lord judges, we, we all tend to uh, enjoy it when there's, there's no such thing as karma. We know that. But say the guy blows past us in the lane and cuts us off and hits his brakes and we look at that and then just over the hill a cop pulls over and pulls him over. We're going, yeah. We were so glad that happened. But that's not the Lord, obviously. That's, and that's not karma. But we get this little bit of satisfaction, don't we? With, with uh, seeing you know, the trickster get tricked. And that's what's going on here. David's saying flat out, the Lord's known by his judgments, and he executes judgments. The wicked, the very snare that they made. You, know, you want to talk about the, the surveillance on Americans. You want to talk about the, the uh, things that they're spying on us. Well, the day is coming when they're going to be hiding in rocks so the Lord can't see them. You know, they think they can see everything that's going on. He sees right through all of it. You know, um, so, um, even as we speak, there's those that are doing that. And they're, they're, they plan to silence believers, just like they tried to chat, trap Jesus in his words. They wait for the opportunity to delegitimize our testimony and the word of God that we're teaching and preaching. They're waiting for the opportunity to take it out. Darwinism, evolution. Um, I love Ray Comfort, what he does with, uh, with that. And if you ever get a chance to check out, I think it's Living Waters and Way of the Master is another one. Uh, those are uh, different uh, websites. Or you can just go on YouTube and just uh, um, uh, look up Ray Comfort. We've shown him here before, but it's such a powerful tool to see how he just... Uh, uh, reaches out to these in their conscience, asking them if they're liars, asking them if they've ever stole, asking them if they've ever committed adultery, asking them, does that mean heaven or hell? A righteous judge. They have to admit, well, I don't believe in it, but probably hell. And he says, well, doesn't that worry you? Doesn't that concern you? And he wins them over. And some do, some don't. Some are hard. Some go away puzzled. Some go away laughing. But every one of them heard right then and there. And the Lord will do what he's going to do in their lives. It's by his Holy Spirit that he quickens people. Don't be afraid to look at those videos and learn how to follow those simple techniques. Paul said it's the law that brings us to a knowledge of our sin. And through the law, not being able to keep the Ten Commandments, not acknowledging the fact that, like Jesus said, you look at a woman to lust, that's committing adultery. You've broken the commandment right there. Taking the name of the Lord in vain, you know, People just do it all the time, even if it's o, OMG and, and so forth. And they don't want to acknowledge that it's sin. Well, you take them to the scriptures and you show it to them. Anyways, worth looking up, Ray. little ad there for nothing. And um, 
if you would, um, God is still known. And if you want to look at 2 Peter 3, um, and I didn't mark that, so I'm going to have to flip there as well. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. God is still known, and David's talking about how God is known for his judgments. Um, it says in verse 1, Beloved, now I write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds, by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to our own lusts, if they're willing to admit it, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully, they're not just forgetting, they, they're intending it, it's on purpose, they forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, marvelous, the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world then existed, perished. He was judged, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. There's a testimony. That's why Darwinism or, or you know, um, evolution, all of that, they get back to a point and they realize it doesn't make sense. They think, it all came from nothing. They say, well, there's, God doesn't exist. How could he create all this stuff? And so in their head, they're thinking, nothing can't create anything. But that's evolution. You go back far enough. Anyway, um, the way in verses uh, 17 and 18, there's a, a, another contrast between the wicked nations that forget God and the needy and the poor that will not be forgotten by God. The wicked shall be turned into hell. And that means death at the time in this writing. Um, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. And God's looking out for, for that. Um, it's, uh, we, we talk about how he's a refuge for the oppressed. And he does not forget the cry of the humble. But here David brings out some of the attributes of God in all of this. The wicked forget God and want to be oblivious to anything of the Lord, the word of God. You know, the, his people, Israel. You know, you and me and the rest of the body of Christ. But also, the wicked want to forget God. They don't want to deal with the poor and the needy either. And that might have a different flavor when you think about social justice. It's all about equity and so forth. And so they say, but truth is, if you dig below the surface in the socialism, the needy and the poor are even more needy and more poor. And there's more of them. And it's that way. It's been that way around any history in the last hundred years of, of all of that. You can look at any country and the, the standard of living and the way people are um, and that's not to get political. I'm just saying, this is what the wicked think. They, they don't care about the needy and the poor. It's a means for them, those that are in power, to have more power. And so David's talking about that. Um, but what does God say about the needy and the poor of this world? Um, in, there's two words. The word needy in the Hebrew shows up 61 times in the Old Testament. Basically means in want. Needy, chiefly poor, needy person, subject to oppression and abuse. They're in a tough situation where they're vulnerable. Uh, they need help. 
deliverance from trouble, especially as delivered by God, it means in this context, and general reference to the lowest class. Um, the next word, poor, shows up 78. And that's just the main uh, you know, uh, noun here, um, or subject. Uh, there's other where it would be uh, multiple. It's 78 times in the Old Testament there for the poor, the needy, the weak. It's the afflicted, the humble, the wretched, the lowly. In the Greek, it shows up uh, 34 times in the New Testament. New Testament. So that many times, 100 and some 60 times throughout the scriptures, he's talking about the needy and the poor. Do you think this is something the Lord's concerned about? Do you think this is a subject that he's concerned with? Let's, I'm going to run you through a bunch of Psalms and see if we can see what God's heart is. We've got a few minutes. Um, Psalm 12, just a page over here from Psalm 9, verse 5. It says, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, and I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. In Psalm 35, verse 10, a couple pages, well, a dozen pages. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders them. You know, on one side of the coin, watch out. Um, don't be the person who's doing that, exploiting the poor. You have an enemy you don't realize in the Lord, not just uh, the, the policeman. You know, Psalm sixty-nine, thirty-three says simply, "The Lord hears the poor, and He does not despise His prisoners." And that's something to consider as well: visiting those that are in prison. And what they have and don't have may not be that they're lacking food and shelter, but uh, they're certainly being oppressed. And, and granted, they put themselves there, but doesn't mean that we can't visit them with the gospel. And um, the next one I had was uh, 72.4, and that's just the next page. And then also 12 through 14. So 72.4 is not on the next page, it's here. Uh, he will bring justice to the poor of the people, and he will save the children of the needy, and will break into pieces the oppressor. And then in uh, verses 12 through 14, he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who does no, has no helper. He will spare the poor and the needy, and he will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem, redeem their life from oppression and from violence, and notice this, precious shall be their blood in his sight. And that's what he's talking about in Psalms, right? He's judging these guys for the blood they shed, for the blood they shed by pressing the poor in Psalm 9. And uh, if you go to Psalm 109, 30 and 31, it says, I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. And yes, I will praise him among the multitude." For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. And then skip into Proverbs, 30, uh, Proverbs 14, verse 31. I can just read it if you don't want to try and find it there. But he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. Consider that. Um, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. 
if you're honoring the Lord, have, you have mercy on the needy. You have mercy on the, for, on the poor. Did you realize that the oppressor is uh, reproaching God? Those that take advantage. God will judge. We see a lot of injustice. These days they're trying to tell us what justice is and what justice isn't and, and all that. And, um, you know, but there's a true justice and there's a true way for us to honor God. Um, so what does God say? Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's the poor who heard the gospel first. Remember the, the wedding feast? Jesus went to all his friends and they all said, eh, we're not coming. All right, let's, I need people for the wedding feast. They go out to the streets. They go out into the highways and the byways, beating the bushes. Well, who lives out in the highways and the byways? They don't smell very good. They might not look very good. They might not talk very good. But they're the poor. And they're what? What does he say? They're the ones that he preached the gospel to. Of the widow who gave a few mites, it says she gave more than the wealthy because she gave out of her need. And when you make a feast, he says, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blame, uh, the blind. <laughs> Galatians 2, verse 10. Um, we're getting close. It says, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Paul's talking to the Galatians about meeting up with the guys in Jerusalem for the first time, and they recognized that the Gentiles were, were um, getting saved. And so they gave him his blessing. Paul's going off to the Gentiles. And yet, the one thing that was also to be mentioned, besides everything else, don't forget the poor. And then finally, James 2 and there's a lot in James about the poor and what we're uh, to consider. But just taking verses 2 through verse 9 in James 2. And he talks a lot about the oppressors as well in James. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come a poor man in filthy clothes, if you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit there at my footstool, out of the way, kind of where we don't have to look at you. You have shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, calling him beloved. He's reaching out to him, appealing to him. God has not chosen the poor of this, or has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. And do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you've been called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, that being you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Showing partiality. So David's talking about the poor. So we're talking about the poor. Psalm 9, verses 19 and 20 to finish up Psalm 9. God will judge. But first, if possible, David says that they would know themselves but men and maybe consider that, uh, that they need the Lord, that they need a Savior. Even at the end, Lord, show them. Put fear in them. 
you know, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Think about that. Um, he's, he's declaring that he'll judge. He's declaring, and God will judge. And uh, those who oppress, they think that there's caste systems around the world where people have a higher caste than somebody else. There's the Dalits in India, if you're familiar. And uh, the castes that look down on them as though they're not even human beings. There's some cultures in the worlds where they treat half of their people as dogs. And that is not the Lord. And uh, he asks, Lord, let these guys, these oppressors, these high and mighties, let them know that they're just men. And you know, he will. The day's coming. We don't need to be upset about those people in power right now that are directing our lives one way or another that we don't like. Um, You know what? They think that they're able to oppress they don't think themselves but men. They think themselves a little bit more. Well, I'll tell you what, they are but men. And if they don't acknowledge it before they see him face to face, they'll bend the knee at that point. Whoever the, sto- the stone, uh, whoever falls on the stone will be broken. Whoever the stone falls upon will be crushed. And so fall on the Lord before you end up meeting him face to face and being crushed because you didn't have the Lord. Most of us are here because we became aware that we were poor in spirit, you know, and uh, some of them, and, you know, that we needed a Savior. Some of us maybe don't know that. And so if you're here and through any reason that you're ministered to by this and you realize you need a Savior, you realize that you're not uh, going to be able to do it on your own strength. And there's times that I fall back into that, not trusting the Lord and, and worrying about things that only He can take care of. And why not just trust Him and let Him take care of it? Let the peace of God be the rule, be the umpire in our hearts and let him be the one that uh, gives us that comfort and that peace. Um, Just like Jesus said, we heard the gospel of salvation while poor and needy and he has lifted us up, maybe not to worldly wealth but heavenly riches and eternal life. (laughs) Rejoice in that. We don't even have a clue how good it's going to be. We learn to trust him for our needs, and sometimes that means a lot of contentment. But I tell you what, if you're content with the little that you have, you're richer than Bill Gates by a mile. You know, you sure are, because you're content. He's not. He's got to rule the world. He's still trying to find a drug to fix things. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's hard to imagine, but uh, as soon as you're content with what you have, you're richer than Bill Gates. Anyway, we need to learn to trust him for our needs. And God's heart is toward the poor and the needy. And we can't help but reflect that if we're walking with him. And uh, we've got to trust him and depend on him, have a heart towards others. So let's stand up, stretch your legs, and pray and go on our way. Thanks, Father, for your grace and your mercy and your love. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Lord, we're just so grateful for what lies ahead for us. We have extremely bright futures in you, and we can't wait. And while we're here, give us grace to endure what we've got to go through on any given day. And it just brings the world right in front of our eyes. But Lord, we ask that you would give us grace and that you'd remind us and call us to remember that we've got a bright future. And we pray you'd come quickly. And Lord, use us to draw as many to you as, as you see fit, whoever you put in front of our face, and however you provide for us, I pray that you just call us to that. 
and uh, put a nudge in our hearts just to share you and to share the marvelous works that you've done in our lives. And let us go home tonight and think about it, what marvelous things you've done, and dwell on that so that we have the equipment to share that with others. And Lord, we can't do any of this on our own. Anything that has to do with our hearts, anything that has to do with bringing our thoughts captive, we need your help with that. And so we ask for that. We just uh, pray you continue to cause the love to grow in this fellowship and throughout believers around the world. And and, uh, thank you so much for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.